Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Bo Bigelow, writer, author, and attorney. He became a rare disease advocate when his daughter Tess was born with the US B7 mutation. When genetic testing reached a dead end for Tess, Bo and his wife successfully used social media to launch their search for answers and connect with researchers at Baylor College of Medicine. He also made a short film about their search. He hosts a blog and a weekly podcast called Stronger Every Day about the challenges of raising Tess. He is co-founder of Disorder, the Rare Disease Film Festival. Bo holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Georgetown University and a law degree from New York University School of Law. Welcome to the show, Bo Bigelow. We're delighted to be speaking with you today. Now, I understand from our conversation before that you are particularly interested in supporting people who've got rare diseases. But before we come to that, can you talk about your journey and how you came to be in the position that you're in now? Thank you for having me, Moyes. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. My, my wife and I went through a long diagnostic journey with our daughter, Tess. She's 10 years old right now. She's a, a really sweet girl and has a great disposition, and she's really happy and loving to her older brother and to us. She's lovely to be around. Um, she needs supervision all the time. She needs somebody with her 24-7 because without that, she'd be a, a danger to herself. And after she was born, right after she was born, we knew something was something was afoot. We, we weren't sure what it was, but we could tell there were some issues with her vision and she had some GI issues and she wasn't walking and she wasn't talking. And, you know, she... I, I always hear that the second child kind of lags behind the first in terms of the development, but after a while it became undeniable that she just wasn't doing these things. And so uh, round after round of genetic testing that we went through with um, some, some geneticists that came back negative for all these different things that we uh, heard that this might be. And so we were always looking, we were looking online, reading stuff. My wife's a, a physician, actually, she's a GI doc. Um, she treats um, adults. And we were also seeing people. We were going to Boston Children's Hospital a lot and consulting with various experts about what they thought this might be. And all the while, Tess was falling further behind her same age peers in terms of her development. And we, and we didn't know why. And it was really um, frustrating and, and maddening. And so in the, in the meantime, we got these diagnoses in various systems. We found out after a time that she had hip dysplasia. Uh, from an orthopedist in Boston. So that, that would explain kind of the difference in, in her hips and kind of her mechanics and why why maybe she wasn't walking. Um, and we learned about her vision. Her She has cortical visual impairment, which basically means that her, her eyes work fairly well, but it's, it's a matter of her eyes telling her brain what they see. And so there was a breakdown there. And we got an autism, autism diagnosis, and so we got these diagnoses in various systems, and this gave us access to a lot of services here in Maine where we live. And I know we were really lucky to have that much help and have that much uh, support here, but we never stopped looking. And I, I want to stress this. I feel like having those diagnoses was really nice, but it didn't tell us why Tess had so many issues in so many of her systems. And we had this 
this belief that there was one sort of overarching cause that was leading to all of these issues. And we didn't know what it was. And we just had to look harder. And so um, our genetics teams, we had two teams. We had one here um, in, in Portland, in Maine, where we live. And then we had another one down in Boston. And they, they didn't know either. And they told us that. They said, look, we've gone through everything we think this might be. We think it might be Prader-Willi syndrome. It looks like that. Well, that's negative. And Angelman syndrome it looks like that. And that's negative. And, and they crossed off everything from their list that, that they'd heard of that they thought this might be. And eventually they came to us and said, look, you know, at this point, we don't, we don't know what this is. We've tested for everything we think it could be. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you're kind of on your own. We, we don't really know. And so mm-hmm. finally I read this story in, in the New Yorker in this magazine that was about another family that was in the same position as us, where they just had a lot of stuff happening with their son and they didn't know what it was and they didn't want to give up. They, they too, had this suspicion that there was a, a thing, right, an overarching sort of cause. And they didn't want to give up either. And so they, the, the father of this family, this guy, Matt Might, he's a computer science guy. And so he knew that what we do as these parents, once we go down this road of, of this diagnostic journey, what we do is we stay up late and we Google things. We just, we get online and we, you know, you just put all the symptoms in a Google search, you know, with quotes, without quotes, like put the quotes around this, put the quotes, just trying all these different things to to try to find something, anything, just any one person out there who maybe has the same experience, the same thing that you have. And so this guy, Matt Might, knew that that's what parents do. And he's a he's a computer science guy. And so what he did is come up with a plan, kind of a blueprint of sorts that was designed to. Um, have parents like me loaded up with with the data, with the actual genetic findings. You know, we, we mapped Tess's genome, and so we knew that there was a gene called USP7, and we knew we knew it was mutated, but nobody could tell us anything more than that. And so we knew it was a variant of unknown significance. That's kind of the the terminology in genetics. And so what Matt's Matt's plan was you take you take that stuff, you know, your actual mutation and that language, and you create your own sort of just a blog post about your child. And then you you set it up and you kind of turn it on and you let the internet find you. You let people find you. And so that's what we did. And, and Tess was five at the time. Um, this was 2015. And, and, you know, it was kind of an unusual process because my wife and I, we are both kind of type A people, you know, we don't like to give up. And we kind of gone back and forth, like, ah, maybe we should just let this go and live with Tess and just let her be who she's going to be and not try to find anything and just be at peace with it. And we just went back and forth between that, you know, being at peace with it and then saying like, no, we got to try, we got to try. And and once we saw this article, we were like, all right, we got to, we got to do this. And so we, we did it. We followed Matt's plan and our idea was that maybe, you know, we didn't want to get our hopes up, but we thought maybe if we follow Matt's plan and we do this blueprint and we set up the blog post, maybe we'll find one more family someday. And let's just like take a deep breath and, you know, click post and put this out there and see what happens. And we have this amazing network of 
family and friends who had been with us for this whole journey who like, you know, just watched us kind of go back and forth between hope and despair and with all, all these tests and they were with us the whole way. And so once we put it out there, they responded, they were amazing and they shared it and it went, it went crazy. It was, it was all over the internet and 24 hours later, less than 24 hours later, the next day, literally, I got this email from a guy uh, who works in a lab at Baylor College of Medicine in, in Houston, Texas, here in the U.S. And he he said, I work on this gene. Uh, I know of other patients. We should talk. And uh, so that day, like literally the day after we posted this thing, my wife and I got on the phone with this guy. His name is Mike Fountain. And he was a he was a postdoc in this lab. And we got on the phone with him, and he told us there were seven other kids who had USP seven. And we told him about Tess's symptoms, and he said, "Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's what we're seeing in these other kids. Some of this stuff, you know, definitely sounds familiar. And you know, Tess would be patient number eight, and that was it. So it took us five years, and that to us felt like forever. But I know that some families look for even longer." And I know that some families look for that long and they don't get an answer and they're still looking. But that that day of finding our tribe, of just knowing that there's these seven other people out there, we didn't even talk to any of them. We just talked to this guy who studies our gene. Uh, but just connecting with him and, and those researchers who've made this their life's work, who work in rare diseases and want to help us, I'll, I'll never forget that. That was one of the greatest days of our entire lives, for sure. And it led my wife and me to start our nonprofit, so that it's called the Foundation for USP7 Related Diseases. And and our goal is to fund research to get us to a cure or a treatment for this. Yeah. I have to ask you straight away, how is your daughter now? She's doing really well. We, um, we are pursuing a lot of therapies that relate to all these various systems. Yes. So she gets physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech and some vision stuff. And uh, we work really hard and she has an amazing team here in our school district that works, works really hard with her. Yeah. And she's doing great. I think, you know, what we try to keep in mind is, is not to really compare her to anybody else who's 10 years old and in fourth grade, but just what, what progress is she making? Yeah. And how is she working and how is she doing and, and is she happy and is she thriving? And, and all of those things kind of go together to just point, point to a picture of her just always making progress. Wonderful. You know, always doing a little something. Every day there's just a little something more that we see from her that is amazing to us. I ask that question because I'm sure the listeners will be very keen to know that she is okay and that you, you know, you, you, you're making progress and that, you, that this has been a very, very difficult journey for you, but there was some light at the end of the tunnel and that things are at least better than they were before you knew that there were other seven other people out there with this condition. And you were telling me earlier that there are a lot more. That's right. What's, what's so exciting about the foundation that we started, one of our missions, I mean, we want to cure this. We want to get to a cure, a treatment, but a big part of that is finding more patients. Yeah. You know, anybody who's working on this says, look, you know, eight people is great, but I'd love some more information about who else is out there, what other symptoms there are, you know, what other mutations specifically we're looking at. So so the, the discoverer of this disease, this guy, Christian Schaff, he's a, he's a German um, clinician, and he 
he told us right away, he said, listen, you know, what I really need you to do is find me some more people. So that's another part of what we do. So I have a, you know, a podcast of my own and I make videos and I just try to just shout as loud as I can about USB 7 just so people know about it. Because I think what happens is, is people, people get a diagnosis. They hear, oh, my kid has autism. And then they stop and they say, okay, that explains what I'm seeing here. I'm good. I know what I need to know. You know, I'm going to just do what they do for kids with autism and I'm going to get on with my life. But when you get right down to it, autism is just a, a piece of this puzzle. And so, you know, if you have autism and some of this other stuff that makes up our disease, you don't know about USP7. We certainly didn't. And it's not from lack of looking. I mean, we looked like crazy all the time. But, you know, if we can just get it out there and have people find out, like if you have GI stuff and vision stuff and hip stuff and, you know, you have these things, if, if this sounds familiar to you, if your child sounds like this, maybe you have USB 7. Like talk to your geneticist and maybe get sequenced and check this out and, and maybe you belong with us. And so we know there's a lot more people out there. We're at 70 now. We just got our 70th. Um, patient uh, worldwide that we know of so far, but I, that's what I'm saying. Is like we know there are so many more, and if we could just reach more people and tell them about about these symptoms and about our disease, we we know we could get more into our into our fold. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I hear you loud and clear, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. This sounds like an ext- this is has been an extraordinary journey with an extraordinary condition and led by an extraordinarily brave family. So we share all of that with you. But in many ways, I'm thinking about the generality of medicine. And I'm thinking that there are so many much, much more common conditions where patients present with vague symptoms. I'm thinking of Addison's disease. I'm thinking of celiac disease. I'm thinking of things that household names which present with vague symptoms. And of course, the challenge for healthcare is, whilst those conditions are, uh, the diagnosis and the treatment is very, has been established for many years, you know, in your case, it hasn't yet been established. I am confident it will get there with your energy. However, being in the system where you are talking to physicians who can't see it because they're blind, because they don't recognize the pattern, because we are pattern recognition experts, doctors. What was that like for you over the years? Because here are some another very some very important lessons for healthcare. How do we respond to people whose condition we don't understand? You can't just say it's all in your head or it's just this thing or it's a variant of that thing. What was that like for you? Because clearly that didn't work. Yeah, I think, you know, we definitely had some skepticism up front. You know, we would go in for things like a a vision assessment and somebody who is uh, an an ophthalmologist and just looking at Tessa's vision, just the vision piece of it, is looking at her eyes and saying, yeah, she needs glasses. She needs, she has this mild need for a correction. And so here's a set of glasses for her. And we would say, yeah, but but she doesn't see. We come into a room and she doesn't know we're there. Or she just doesn't recognize what's happening around her. Like she's not seeing. And so this ophthalmologist was saying, well, 
I'm looking at her eyes and I'm telling you, maybe she needed these glasses, but otherwise she can see fine. These rods and cones in her eyes are working fine. And so just trying to communicate an idea of something that we didn't know existed and we now know does, it's called cortical visual impairment. That was challenging for us. And I think just trying to get him to listen and he um, was very generous of spirit. I think, I think he wanted to, I think he wanted to hear us. I think he was saying kind of, look, what I'm seeing is this, the eyes work or they will work with these glasses. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. We're still in touch with this guy, uh, this ophthalmologist here in Portland. And he's, he's a really, um, I think open person in some ways. Um, I've been back to him since. And when we go in for a checkup, for tests, we don't meet with him right away. We meet with somebody from his staff, um, and they they sit down at a computer and they check us in. And so they ask a lot of questions, like, "Hey, are there any vision issues? And you know, what's your history here? Let me take some of this down." And so I explain CVI, I explain cortical visual impairment. And now, when I go, you know, five years later, six years later, I say I explain it to them. They say, "Oh, CVI, okay, great," and they click a box. In his software, and I say, this is great. You know, he he has reached a point where that's a it's a it's a click in his menu for a thing that is now acknowledged, yes. um, and so that means a lot to us because it just means that we we had a hard time being heard. I think initially, but it, it wasn't that he didn't believe us. It was just he didn't have. He, that wasn't part of his program quite yet, I think, I, I guess I would say, you know, that, that, you know, CVI wasn't really on his radar, but now it, it is, and we're so grateful. And I'm sure there were good experiences and not so, not so positive experiences. So in terms of the good experiences, now if you were coming to see me, and I'm a family doctor, and I saw a child who I could not diagnose, uh, put, put in, a, in my box, as it were, this is what this is. Sure. Would it be helpful to you as a family if, I, if you'd been seeing me early on and I really didn't know what this condition was, what would have been helpful to you in terms of my approach to it? Because I wasn't really, I wasn't going to be able to do that, which you really needed, was to say, hey, this is a condition. There are 70 other people in the world. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. I think I don't have a scientific background, um, so I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in medicine by any stretch. But I think what I would say is that I, I am an expert in tests. You know, I know what I know about her. And I think our best experiences with, with visiting physicians is when they, when they really hear us and they recognize that we are the experts about tests. And even if it's a thing they've never really heard of, they kind of meet us halfway. You know, they, sometimes I've been to appointments where they say, you know, I, I've never heard of that. Hmm. The thing you're describing, it, this is the first time I'm hearing it, but let me check into this a little bit. Let me do some research and um, let's talk again. And so what they'll do is they'll literally go read some papers. They'll read scientific papers about actually what's what's worked well is uh, there's a disease called Prader-Willi syndrome, which is which is kind of in the same family as our disease. It's the same pathway. And so um, it's worked well for some of these physicians to, to look at the data relating to, to Prader-Willi and then, and then reconnect with us and say, you know, I, 
I looked at some papers about Prader Willi patients, and it seems like you know they all really benefit from growth hormone when we went to see somebody about uh, growth hormone and trying to figure out you know what the best course of action was for that. And they went and looked at all these papers, and they were able to come back and say, you know, I, I'd never heard of this thing you mentioned, but I read these papers about a similar disease, and now I'm ready to talk about it, and now I'm ready to talk about side effects. And, like, this is what they see in those patients, and this is kind of what you can expect. These are the side effects you could maybe see, and these are the dangers that you might be aware of, and these are the benefits that could, that could come along. Yes. So I'm, what I'm hearing is that the advice you're offering to clinicians is that patient is the expert on tests, whoever the test is in their life at the time. They are the expert. And if they will stop for a minute and say, tell us what you know, tell us, point us in the right direction, and then we will look up what we know from our end in terms of the science or the medicine behind this. And then let's have a conversation together and let's work as a team to actually make Tess's life a whole lot better and make you feel that you've been heard, even although we don't have a name for this just yet. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is exactly right. Because I, I think the, the visits that haven't gone as well are the ones that make us feel like we're making things up. Like it couldn't possibly be as we're describing. And it, it just, you know, I don't know what to do with that. It's like, I'm not making this up, but you're absolutely right. The people who meet us halfway and do some of that work, that's absolutely right. Yeah. You're not asking people to be an expert on a condition that hasn't even been diagnosed yet. What you're asking for is to be heard, is to is for someone to acknowledge that you're the expert on tests and therefore you can guide them, lead them to the place where they could use what expertise they have in order to help you deal with it until one day we have a name for this. You got it. That's right. Cool. Talk to me about the film festival, because I'm fascinated by this. Where did it start and what's it about? <laughs> Through my work with the foundation, I started to just attend conferences and try to get out there. And I think part of what this journey has been for me is to sort of own it. You know, it's it's uncomfortable at first, I think, when you first enter into this world of rare disease, because you just don't, you don't know what it's about quite yet, and you don't really know what your role is going to be and and you have to kind of discover your identity as this rare disease advocate and it and it's a process it doesn't happen overnight and i wasn't comfortable with it right away i think initially i just thought i need to go talk to people about this but i don't know what that talking will result in and i don't know what i'm supposed to do like is this my job now i, I just didn't know and so part of that involved meeting another rare disease dad who was a little further down that process than I was. Um, a guy named Daniel DeFabio from upstate New York. He lives outside of Albany. And we met at this conference literally just a couple weeks after I'd gotten our diagnosis for tests, like I was telling you earlier. So, And he had had his diagnosis for his son, Lucas, um, who had Menke's disease. He'd known that for quite a while. And so he was further down that path and, and was able to own it a little more. He was doing some writing about it. And there was something about the way he conducted himself as as a as an advocate, just just owning it and saying, "Well, this is this is part of my identity now. Like this is part of my job as Lucas's dad is to tell his story 
And I made a film about Lucas and, you know, here's where you can find it. And so he was a filmmaker and, and just right away I was drawn to him and that attitude and that approach. And I thought, well, this is where I hopefully will be, you know, in time in my process of owning USB seven and really becoming an advocate. And so Daniel and I kept in touch after we met at this conference and then he called me a couple of years. We, we, we kept in touch. We were talking just every so often about our writing, but then he called me with this idea and he said, Hey, I want to start this rare disease film festival. And I think what we could do is show my film about Lucas and you could show your film about Tess. And I said, well, I don't, I don't have a film about Tess. I'm not a filmmaker. And he said, well, I'm going to help you make a film because you need one. You need to do this. That's part of storytelling is, you got to have something out there that people can watch. And it doesn't have to be long. It's not going to be an hour and a half. It's just like a short documentary. And I'm going to help you. And, and we're going to make this together. And so he did. He helped me a lot. And I made my film. And then in 2017, we had our first festival in Boston. And at the time, we didn't know. We were interested in what we were doing because we're rare disease parents. But we, we didn't know what, if anybody else would show up for this kind of thing. It's not a... It's not exactly a a laugh a minute kind of feel good thing to do with your evening, like a, you know, Will Ferrell film festival or something. It's not that it's, it's some of this stuff is really hard and there's, you're going to shed some tears and you're going to see some stuff that's really difficult to wrap your head around. And we didn't know whether anyone else would want to do that. And we knew that was an experiment. And so we put it out there just to see one, would anybody sponsor this sort of thing? And two, are there any films out there? Is anybody making films like this? And so we got this great response. We were blown away by how many people had films, had made films about their rare disease or their friend or their family member. So we had more films than we knew what to do with. And then suddenly we had all these sponsors too who were clamoring to get on board and be part of this first year in, in Boston. And um, so we were we were thrilled with that first year. We were just kind of humbled and just honored really by how much people wanted to be part of it. And, and so that's what it's been since then is, you know, we did Boston in, in 2017 and then we took a year off in 2018 and we did San Francisco in 2019 and we were slated to be in New York city in May of this year uh, of all times and places, which as you might imagine that didn't end up happening. And so we're kind of at a crossroads right now in terms of what we do next, but we have gotten this, um, group of people, just a a lot of filmmakers who are out there who are passionate about their disease, Mm -hmm. about what they want to talk about, about their stories. And, and the variety, the variety of these stories is really what I think surprises me. It's not so much, you know, your standard sort of, um, we knew something was wrong and then cut to a clinician who says, these are the symptoms. And then the disease is ABCDE. I mean, it's, it's all kinds of stuff. Like I, we, we got a submission this year about somebody who really likes to work out, but her disease has a lot to do with her bones and her body and whether she can continue to do these workouts. And so you're going into the gym with her and you're watching her kind of still try to lift weights, but you know, she can't do it like she used to, but she's still, it's just about her life and, and about, trying to maintain her identity, you know, while dealing with this rare disease. And, and I think the beauty of it is it's her film. She's the filmmaker mm-hmm. and she is just so 
honest about it. Um, her name's Lexi Pappas, and she just is so um, raw, I think, and, and honest in telling her story. Just like, you know, well, I used to work out like this, and, you know, now I can't do that, and so now I do it this way. Watch. And she does it, and she does it on camera, and you're just you're just kind of floored by how just how honest she is, really. And I think, you know, that's a way to tell that story that I – I don't think I'd seen before. And I think that's what's so refreshing and beautiful about it. It's, it's just like, wow, this is, a, and it's relatable. You know, it's like, wow, I work out. And, you know, what if I couldn't lift my arms up above my head? Like, what would my workout look like? How would I change? Would I still even bother to work out? Well, this person is. And like, how inspiring is that? You know, it's amazing. So we're really excited about, about the festival. And we, we're kind of finding that right now we kind of have to pivot because a big part of our audience every time that we've done the festival has been patients and they are immunocompromised and they are the people who would actually be the most vulnerable to uh, coronavirus. So we aren't sure when we're going to be able to have an in-person event again. And so we're investigating some streaming options and trying to figure out what to do next Um, because these are stories that, that have to be told. They have to get out there. Yes. We want as many people to see them as possible. Yes. I think you're right. They have to be told. They have to get out there. What you're describing is not a rare experience for a lot of people with very well-known conditions. They experience very similar stories to the ones that you're telling us. And that may well be one way that you could certainly engage with the mainstream to say, that whilst this is an interesting thing, it tells us so much about what is common to our human experience, that we, we all experience these kind of heartbreaking moments where we have to pivot our lives, we have to change our approach. And in order to respond to us, you need to see the humanity here and not, not the interesting conundrum, the real person, the real life. I share your passion and your interest in doing this and anything that the journal can do and certainly the podcast can do, we will be honored to be involved with you to make that happen. Hopefully this conversation that we're having will take us some way towards that. Okay, look, we've been going for a good half hour and I wanted to end particularly with you telling us something about one or two lessons that you've learned that would be of help, not just to someone with a rare disease, but with somebody who has, a, as I call it, a not rare experience. I know a lot personally about the strain of having Tess in our lives. Like we love her so much and we're really happy to have her. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the challenges as well. Physically it's demanding, but me- but mentally too. And so I have a few friends all over the country who are doing the same thing. They have kids with disabilities, uh, rare genetic syndrome. Some are from our USB7 group, but some of them aren't. And I'm just not sure where I'd be if I couldn't talk or at least text with them most days. I just, I need a boost sometimes. And I think I need to know that other people are having a hard time and finding frustration. So I know it's not just me. And I need to hear what they're doing in order to deal and what's helping kind of where they're at. And I think anybody who's dealing with any kind of a health issue, whether it's for themselves or or somebody in their family, I think the value, especially now in this pandemic, of connecting to other people in a way that's real 
in a way that lets us be vulnerable and lets us connect in a, in a way that, that helps. I, I think that's what's made the difference for me. I think those are my best days when I'm able to do that for real. We hear that and it resonates with a lot of our listeners because Victor Montori, who is a, a professor at the Mayo Clinic, talks about the burden of illness. And he says that to you and I as a clinician, this may be a name and a diagnosis, but it comes at a huge cost to the people who've got to live with that day in, day out. And what you're saying is what helps those people isn't necessarily the professional help, but the fact that they've got others who are on that journey with them. And what you're doing is to actually help people to connect through the festival, through the website, and in other ways, in order to help them to to live that life. Because if life goes on, whether you like it or not, life goes on and it has to go on and people have to cope with the circumstances that they find themselves in. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, the amount of energy that that gives me, just just the even the briefest connection, just knowing for a moment that something that I've said has resonated or or somebody says something to me that just like was exactly what I need to hear that day. I, I think that that's what keeps me going. And I think as long as I can do that, I can I can keep doing this. You know, my wife and I can keep doing this with Tess and we can keep going. But that's what we really need. That's what gives us life. And because of the work that you're doing, so many other families, certainly 70 other families, and maybe many, many more, will find life that much easier. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.